بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم أجمعين سبحانك لا علمنا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العليم الحكيم ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله العلي العظيم نوينا التعلم والتعليم ونفع وانتفاع والتذكر والتذكير والإفادة والاستفادة والحث على التمسك بكتاب الله وسنة رسوله صلى الله عليه وسلم والدعاء للهدى والدلالة على الخير ابتغاء وجه الله تعالى ومرضاته وقربه والثوابه سبحانه وتعالى Welcome back to our sister's halaqa that we have titled Nurturing Our Children and we've had several sessions now this is actually the um, eighth session and we have been spending our time looking at a text that has been translated into English as Educating Children, Classical Advice for Modern Times, which is essentially a translation with some additions of an Arabic text that is titled Riyadat al-Sibyan. And the whole idea of Riyadah, it's the same word that they use for exercise and sports in modern Arabic. But the true meaning of the word riyadah, if you take it back to its origin, they talk about tarweed and nafs, where you, that spiritually struggle, you inculcate virtue in yourself. It's the proper, it's the process of nurturing the soul and ridding it of all vices and allowing to manifest in it all virtues. Or you could say, covering up the vices with virtues. And this is the state of every human being. We ultimately have vices and we have virtues. And even those vices that we cover up with virtues, sometimes they remain dormant in the human soul. And at times they can manifest themselves if we're not careful. And the only way to really fully uproot them from the heart is to become firmly grounded and rooted in their opposite, which are the virtues. And this is ultimately, as this whole text began, for those of you who weren't with us in the beginning, this whole text began about the importance of adab. And so we see in line four, where it talks about Tadib is the active form of inculcating adab. And one of the linguistic nuances of the very word adab if you switch the letters around, you have alif, dal, and ba. And if you switch them around, what do you get? Ba, dal, alif, bada. Which means to? Begin. Okay. So adab is literally when you switch the words around, that which you begin with. So adab is the beginning and it is the end. This whole affair is about adab. All of the rulings of the sacred law all of the classifications of rulings, whether it be haram or whether it be wajib or whether it be makru or whether it be mandub, all the classifications. So whether it's an obligation, whether it's forbidden, whether it's encouraged or whether it's disliked, all of the individual rulings of the sacred law ultimately are there to teach us adab. And what a blessing to approach the sacred law as such. You do hear people say this about a list of do's and don'ts. Sometimes people associate the deen with a list of do's and don'ts. 
And some people are put off by rules. Um, but if I can speak for my own self as someone who converted to this religion, the rules of Islam actually attracted me to the deen. When I read that, subhanAllah, there are certain things you just don't do. There's other things that you have to do. There's certain things that are recommended to do. That actually attracted me to this religion. And my friend Osama Kanan gifted me a book on the lawful and prohibited in Islam before I became Muslim. And when I was reading that book before I converted, I loved it. Because it was, it, what it meant for me is that you have clarity. And part of what motivated me to become Muslim was I didn't have guidance. I believed in God, but I didn't have guidance. I didn't have anything that told me to do this or to not do this. And so I welcomed rules. And actually, I loved the fact that, subhanAllah, you have that clarity to know what it is that you should be doing, what it is that you should not be doing. And so I think it's important that we recognize that. But all of the rules are not there for the sake of the rules. If Allah Ta'ala wanted to, and this is very important how we teach, and again, this, this class is reared towards the idea of educating children, but really we have to educate ourselves first, or else we can't educate anyone. So it's a simultaneous process of further educating our own selves as we educate our children. And the frame behind the rulings, though, the rules are not there for the sake of the rules. They're there ultimately to inculcate adab in us. That's one of the wisdoms behind every single individual ruling of the sacred law. So that if you would ask someone why pork is haram to eat, you will find people say different things. And there's no doubt, sometimes there are that with some of the rulings of the sacred law, a legal rationale behind it. But if you say that pork is unhealthy, well, people could say to you, so is eating beef. Some would say that, oh, perhaps some scientific study is going to come along and say that, oh, beef is unhealthy. So if the whole reason you don't eat pork is because it's unhealthy, and then someone proves to you that beef is actually that more unhealthy, you're in a bind. But if your fundamental perspective of the sacred law and all of its rulings is that Allah Ta'ala gave us those rulings ultimately to teach us adab. That's the foundation. There are certain things you just can't do. And in doing so, it's good for your soul. It's good for your soul. We know that with health. Health ultimately is about restraint. If you can't restrain yourself, it's highly unlikely that you're going to be a healthy person. Health is all about restraint and also doing certain things. So doing things and restraining from things. And spiritual health is no different. And so what a blessing from Allah Ta'ala that we have, there are rulings that under in that which underlies every single ruling ultimately is this idea of inculcating adab in ourselves and then by extension our children. So we've talked about a number of things in relation to this text and, and we left off last session and uh, these are available for those of you that would like to <coughs> catch up if you did missed some of the earlier sessions, um, that the videos are available through YouTube links. Uh, we, can, we can connect you to that, um, inshallah ta'ala. And also, 
um, we, will, we can make a, a playlist of audio recordings if that's easier for you. So we can make those past ones available and as we proceed forward, the ones, the sessions that we'll be having as well. So we, we, we left off at what is the first thing that you need to do when a child reaches the age of Tamiz. So one of the things that we previously discussed is about the various stages of development of children. And there's different perspectives and there's different ways of approaching the different stages and there's different ways of categorizing them. But if you add the legal dimension into it, what is known as the sinatemiz, sin is like your age, sin, and it's like your umur. And temiz, mayyeza yumayizu, is to distinguish. It's to discriminate, not in a negative sense, be able to discriminate the difference between, oh, wow, that is hot and this is not. To know there's certain things that you've got to be careful of and there's certain other things that you can do. They don't give a specific age in the books of jurisprudence about when this begins. They give criterion that point to it. And there's a number of different criteria. Generally speaking, it happens around age seven. For some more mature children, it might happen as early as age five, others around age six, roughly in that five to seven, where now they can eat and drink by themselves. They can differentiate between things that infants, for instance, cannot differentiate between. Um, they can, they actually use this chromocomala as an example. They're able to clean themselves in the restroom. They don't need parental help when they use the restroom and so forth. These are different criteria that determine that the child is at the age of Tamiz. And what the ulama say is, this is where the first stage of the aql, of the intellect, has now, that inter- has now appeared within the human being and within the child. And so before that, yes, it doesn't mean that they don't have any... It's very different. Young children simply just do not know. Nor does that mean that you don't still try to teach them certain things, no. But the way you do it's very different. At the age of seven, there's also now new rulings. This is the age where we start to introduce them to prayer. This is the age where now, if they're in a state of wudu, they can carry a mushaf, a copy of the Qur'an. There's certain things now that previously children can't do. A child of like three or four, you can't ask them, say, hey, can you bring me that mushaf that's on the table? You have to wait till they reach that to an older age. Why? Because of the worry of them mistreating the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so this is a, a unique stage. And one of the things that the author teaches us is that now... One of its signs, because he says that the, the intellect is, relates to light. And so the light of the intellect appears. And one of the things that you find is that now, children start to be a little bit more shy about certain things. A young child will walk around without their clothes on and they're children. They don't know any better. But then they reach a certain age where now they might want to cover themselves. They're embarrassed by certain things. Um, they're caught doing certain things, and you know it's a very different stage than the previous stages. And one of the things that, that he says here, and this is kind of moving forward because we've already discussed this, so this is just a brief uh, review. He says one of the first things that you want your children to be ex- exposed to 
is the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You want them to be exposed to the Qur'an. And at first, even if they don't speak Arabic, you want to still expose them to the book of Allah. And I had a friend who took part in a project where they were translating different commentaries of the book of Allah, and their teacher told them, which is an amazing point, he said to them, you are going to be fundamentally changed for the rest of your life for all of this time that you spent with the book of Allah. And one of the things that's very important for us to recognize as people, uh, the vast majority of us in this room, are not um, that Arab who speak Arabic as our native tongue. Even though it's good to learn the language of the Qur'an and the language of the Sunnah, However, we have to always remember our prophets taught us, وسلم, the very best worship of my ummah is recitation of the Qur'an. And this was clarified, one of the great imams had a dream where he posed the question with or without understanding. And the response that he received in his dream was with and without understanding, i.e. the recitation of the Qur'an, even if you don't understand the details of what it means. It still is the best form of worship. And why did our Prophet ﷺ say that it is the best form of worship? Well, obviously because it's the book of Allah and it's the eternal speech of Allah. But what does that mean? I.e., it impacts your soul in the greatest ways because the whole wisdom behind worship is the impact of your soul, the impact that worship has upon your soul. And this is why the greater the quality of worship, the more reward that we get from it outwardly, but the greater impact it will have upon your soul. And for this reason, we should be more concerned about quality of worship than quantity of worship. Quantity of worship is taken into consideration in so far as it is laid out by the sacred law. The sacred law says, okay, you have four rakats of dhuhr. Okay, so don't say, I'm going to do six because it's better, more is better. No, the sharia has said four, khalas, you stick to four. But let's say that one, someone wanted to pray 20 rak'ahs at night, 20 cycles of prayer, where they're not really concentrating too much, or four quality rak'ahs. It's better for them to do four than 20. And one of my teachers said to me that reflecting upon one verse of the Qur'an, tadabburu ayatin, is better than finishing the Qur'an many times. Reflecting deeply upon one verse is better than finishing the Qur'an many times. Quality of worship is what we really want. And so this is from the blessing of Allah Taala. Just hearing the Qur'an has a profound impact upon you. And reciting the Qur'an even without its understanding, has a profound impact upon you. And for those of us, then we're all in this situation, and even people who know Arabic, this is one of the, um, if I may, there's this idea that, oh, I'm going to learn Quranic Arabic. And that sounds great to put on a flyer and to get people to attend your program. But the reality is, the Quranic Arabic is the most difficult Arabic. Yes, we have a, a small book that we'll be using for our classical Arabic program that they 
claim that it, in perhaps it's roughly true, that 80% of the words in the Quran are listed in this book, and it's not that many. But knowing the meanings of words is one thing, and that's a, a great step. That's where we begin. But then understanding how those words relate to the other words and understanding the meaning of the verse and the outward meaning and the occasion of revelation and the different dimensions or shades of meaning, that's not easy. The Qur'an is actually, and, I, and I, when I explain this to people, sometimes people don't understand, the hardest thing to teach of all is tafsir. Sometimes for an hour lesson, it takes you 10 hours to prepare. Which sounds like a lot. And like how on earth could it take 10 hours? If you really laid out what it is that you have to do in order to teach Allah's book, you would understand that it takes time. Because the Quran is not like another subject where you can kind of you know, offer your opinion on what you think that it might mean. It's the book of Allah. You have to be very careful. And sometimes you have an opening in your mind like, oh, perhaps this verse means such and such a meaning. But you actually have to find that in the books of the great imams to make sure that is a valid meaning. Because it's, there's no room, there's no margin for error. Unless that you are trained and have all of the prerequisites to then actually give commentary on your own. Um, then you have to stick to what the great imams have said. Now that doesn't mean, surely, that we can't connect meanings to our time from Allah's Ta'ala's book to our time. Uh, we can, but my point here is that it requires training. And so it's a good thing to do both. Have times where you read Allah Ta'ala's book and to also have times where you are learning its meanings. Either by reading the translation of the meanings in English for instance, for us, or whatever language one feels comfortable with, or actually going about learning the Qur'an, and which is a great thing to do. So, having said that, this is something that we should expose our children to at an early age. What he calls, You put him in a situation where he has classes where he's learning Qur'an. Teaching our children from a young age to learn Arabic and to get used to the points of articulation. Because as people get older, they will tell you, the older you get, the more difficult it is to learn any language. And especially when you consider Arabic has certain letters that are very different than most languages. That English language doesn't really have too many of what are called the huruf al-halq, the letters that come from your neck and um, your throat rather. And um, like for instance, the ayn, the point of articulation is right here, right in the middle of the throat. But then there's two letters that are even deeper than that. And then above that, also considered to be a throat level, is where you get your kha and your ghain. But here, right here in the middle is where you get the ayn and you get the ha. Whereas the ha is even deeper. There's the ha and there's the ha. And sometimes it's difficult to differentiate between both. So if you ever ask an American to, pr to pronounce the name Yahya, poor people, they can't do it. Right? Because they don't, there's not a sense of a sukun, like you stop on the yah, yeah. And so what do people say? Yahya. Yeah. They see an H, so they, like, and they stop and they stumble. 
they know they're supposed to pronounce something, but they can't. There's not because in, in English you don't you don't have like you say happy, but it's not you don't say yeah. They don't have it, so it, they stumble on it. So they just I'm saying yeah yeah, as as a result. And actually, some Muslims too who don't know how to pronounce the ha. Anyhow, if you get yourself used to that from an early period, then it becomes easy. And then in a later period, there's no other option except to train your throat. And you have to sit there and pronounce the letter over and over and over again. Even if you're learning at age 25, 30, 35, 40, however, what you ha- there's no other choice. You have to just sit there and just pronounce just ha, he, ho, ih. Same thing for ayn. Ayn is the tough one. And then if you do it enough, your, your throat will get used to it. And then it will translate into when you're actually reciting the Qur'an and you're pronouncing, pronounce, uh, pronouncing Arabic, uh, that uh, you'll pronounce it correctly. And then if you are an ajibi, if you are non-Arab, no matter how long you've spent with Arabic and no matter how many times that you've how long you've lived in the Muslim world, the Arab know that you're Ajami. They know. It will appear in one way or another. Just as we know, if someone hasn't learned Arabic from the time that they're young, uh, learned English rather, there's certain ways to pick up, depending upon their culture, what letters that they find difficulty with. And depending upon your native language will depend upon what letters are difficult even in, for instance, English. Anyhow, so this is something that we should do, is introduce our children to the Qur'an, but not just learning the Qur'an, even more fundamentally than that, loving the Qur'an. And this is a hadith of the Rasul that أَدِّبُ أَوْلَادُكُمْ عَلَى Right, inculcate adab, manners, etiquette, Propriety, all of the meanings that adab contains in your children through three, in three ways. In three ways. The love of the Qur'an, the love of the Prophet, and the love of his family. Right? Inculcating love in the heart for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's book. And love and also majesty. So it's not a good idea to have Qur'an just plain in the background if we're not listening to it. Yes, if you're not there or something, you know, and you can't recite something like Surah Al-Baqarah and you want to make sure that your house is protected, that's fine. Or, actually better yet, even it's perfectly legitimate as well if the child is young while they're sleeping to play Qur'an so that they can hear Qur'an. And even if they're sleeping, it will still, the barakah will be there. Better yet, it's recited, but if you can't recite it, then you can have it. But if you're in a room and Qur'an is being played, we should teach ourselves, actually, and other people, including our children, if they see us that every time the Qur'an is being played, we're listening very carefully, and we're focusing completely. They will know that's what you do. If they never see us speaking over the Qur'an, or that we, for instance, pause, have our conversation, and then get back to what we're doing, they will learn to respect Allah Taala's book. And then, if they see us loving Allah's book, that's the number one thing of all that's going to help them come to love the Qur'an. And there's ways that our love for Allah Ta'ala's book manifests. And you can't really say 
that you love someone or something if that you don't think about that thing or that person or do it often. That's not, you can't say, I love the Qur'an, but you never read it. You're not attached to it. You don't find yourself wanting to learn it. The sign that we love Allah Taala's book is that we recite it often, is that we strive to learn its meanings, and we strive to bring it into our lives and to put it into practice. And this is something that I was going to bring another book that I had that I unfortunately didn't bring. But this is one of the tendencies of religion in general that are decreasing every single year in a secular society like the one in which we live in the United States of America, i.e. reciting scripture. So this is not just a problem within the Muslim community. We actually fare much better than most other religious communities when it comes to this. If I look at my own family, for instance, uh, my grandfather used to read the Bible every single night before going to bed. Every single night. He would read the Bible every single night, in addition to Sunday school and things of that nature, where he was regularly in the church on the weekends. Um, but if I look at the, in the generation before my mother converted, I look at my father, it's like, it's gone. Like, you know, rarely ever, maybe glancing at it in a church service. But it's like completely gone in one generation. And they've tracked these statistics that you don't even need to go back to the 50s or the 60s. You just look at the past 20 to 30 years and how the percentage of people that read scripture regularly has plummeted. It's a very small percentage of people actually ever do this. But this shows us its importance as Muslims of, of holding on and maintaining this. We want our houses to be places where Allah's book is recited. And it doesn't have to be for five, six, seven hours. It could be for just 15 minutes. It could be for just 20 minutes. But we want to strive to have this be regular. And even if someone is, excuse me, reciting slowly, even if they're struggling with the letters, it doesn't matter. The book of Allah should be recited. And then the spiritual benefits of it. And our Prophet mentioned certain chapters of the Quran, like Surah Al-Baqarah, shaitan will not harm your home. It's one of the great protections of having a house that is, the Surah Al-Baqarah is recited in it. It's an immense protection. And we have to keep in mind, the unseen realm, it's precisely be called the unseen realm because we don't see it. But we know they're shaitan. It's very real. Shayateen not only flows in us like the circulation of blood, but there's also shayateen in bad jinn that are, serve as like his minions. They could be around us and we're not even aware at any moment. And when we implement the sunnah of our Prophet and bring it into our lives, it's a protection. Some people obsess over that world. There's two extremes. There are people who act like it doesn't exist because they can't see it, which is a serious extreme. And then there's people who are obsessed with it, that they think everything is a result of something that happened from the unseen. Balance is, dictates, we realize that it exists. And were the veil to be removed, we would be shocked. We would be shocked and not able to bear it, to see the actual whispering of the shayateen in the sudur, 
They whisper in the hearts. The outermost dimension of the heart is the sadr. The shayateen whisper in the outermost dimension of the heart. It's very real. And the way that things end up happening, usually in most case scenarios, are stem from waswasa of shayateen. And then in certain places, there are many more shayateen than in other places. Just as outwardly that's the case. When you go, for instance, to Hajj or you go to Umrah, have you noticed like you're just in a very different state? Why do you enjoy yourself so much? It's because of all of the angels that are present in the unseen, all of the beautiful people, all of the beautiful intentions. And then you get back on the plane and you are on whatever, Turkish Airlines or Emirates or Saudi or whatever, and then there's 150 different movies you can watch. And you're coming back from Hajj or Umrah and you start watching movies. And you're exposed to the world of shayateen instantly just after Hajj and after Umrah. But the point is that likewise in terms of shar, in terms of evil, there are certain places that there's just a lot more shayateen. And when there's a lot more shayateen, there's a lot more ighwa leading people astray as, as a result. So we need to be aware of that. And this is one of the great benefits of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's book. So that's about all we'll say for, for the Qur'an. That's really up until this point, review. But it's important to also emphasize. We want to introduce the Qur'an to our children, the love of the Qur'an, the recitation of the Qur'an, the learning of the meanings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's book, which comes over time. And we don't postpone reading or memorizing Qur'an to learn its meanings. We do both at the same time. And sometimes, especially when the child is young, we give more preference to memorization and then learning the meanings over time. Okay, so for those of you that have the book, um, we are on page 61. And now the author says, أَيْضًا وَشُغْرٌ شَاغِلٌ قَلْبَ عَنْ كُلِّ مَا يُجِبُ نَقْصَ الْأَدَبِ So this is written in a poem form, a didactic poem, which is a very common way of composing texts in Muslim history. And it's a convenient way to um, allow the student to easily memorize the text and then to then be taught. So a lot of these texts were were memorized traditionally. Um, In our culture, oftentimes we don't place a lot of importance on memorization, uh, but these, these texts were oftentimes memorized. Anyhow, he now... Um, and this chapter is titled Developing the Intellect, Keeping the Mind Busy. And so what, what he really says here is um, we need to guard our children and the heart of our children specifically from anything that would lead to reduction in manners. So that there would be any type of naqs, deficiency in their adab. This is an obligation of uh, the parent in relation to the child. We have to protect our children from naqs al-adab. Now, if you've ever experienced traditional societies, and it is this whole task of doing what this author is trying to do, it's the subtitle, Classical Advice for Modern Times. Yalatif. You realize how difficult this is. There are so many things around us that are stripping adab, 
from our own selves. Not we're not going to pick on our children. From our own selves. From our own selves. And by extension, of course, our children. There's so much that they're exposed to. That if you've been exposed to a traditional society, you just see how that far away that that, that is from adab. And so this is the, the, one of the things that we have to do as parents is to find creative ways of preoccupying our children with good things, with permissible things, so that they don't become preoccupied with something that's going to diminish their adab. This is our task. We have to do whatever it is that we can. Now again, this is not something that is easy, especially when there's a pull to many of these things that inculcate in them bad adab. And I think it goes without saying, without going on a tirade against devices and television and TV shows and cartoons and video games and all of these types of things that all of our children are playing. And even when you try to keep your children from them, they will reach them. And even if you don't have a TV at home, that it's almost as if your children still know like everything that's out there. And you're like, how on earth did they come to know that? And um, unfortunately, that sometimes uh, people like to play auntie or uncle and think that it's cute to like, give a child a phone and to let them do their thing with it and so forth. And that as I'm always you know, shocked, especially actually in the traditional Muslim world, which I lived for a long time, I was always shocked that it's almost as if they think these things are totally benign and it's not going to harm them in any way and it's perfectly okay and they don't realize the undertones and the darkness that is associated with a lot of these things. And it's like anything else, just as when a person whose heart is filled with light speaks, the words of that person affect the heart. And yes, it's possible for a person of light to hear words from a person of darkness and because of the strength of their iman that they benefit from what it is that they're saying. But you have to have a strong heart that's filled with light to be able to do that. The vast majority of people, that's not what happens. If the author behind a book or the one who is behind a particular cartoon or the designer of a particular video game has a filthy heart... How are you going to be exposed to all that and not be impacted? You're going to be impacted. You're going to be impacted. And the scary thing is, it's not just, it's not just video games. Sometimes, and sometimes it's an even deeper impact when they're reading books. Because the engagement of it is deeper. It's not visual, but it's deeper. Because you're thinking about those meanings. They're actually deeper. So sometimes reading bad books are even more harmful. Now having said that, yellow thief. Once your children... Now there's a lot I think done nowadays for younger children. But once your children become a little bit older, it's difficult. It is difficult. Especially if they like to read. You might be able to put together a few books here and there. But inevitably, they're going to be exposed to quite a bit. And eventually you have to prepare them to be exposed to everything they're going to be exposed to. But in stages and hopefully giving them the principles that they need to navigate each stage. And so this is not something that is easy. 
And what makes it even more difficult, and not that this should be comforting, but just so that we don't become overwhelmed, what, beca- what makes it more difficult is the rate of change. Things keep changing. Just when you think that you're, it keeps changing, and things keep changing, and they're exposed to more, and the fitin and the tribulations are greater. Um, but we still have to do what it is uh, that we can do, and there's definitely techniques that you can put in place that are going to mitigate a lot of the harm that comes from these various things. But he wants to alert us to the importance of preoccupying the child with something that is good. And he mentions this right after the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And by extension, there's a lot of other things that come to mind here. And one of the things I think that is really important, especially for our time, is really having a different perspective on a category of the Sharia, which is like that middle category. It's one of the five categories. It's the category of the mubahat, the things that are permissible. And there is almost this perspective, and this is what's really weird sometimes in the community, where if someone is just doing something that's permissible, it's almost like looked down upon because they're not doing something that's recommended. And really, our time is a time we have to encourage people to do things that are permissible, to develop good habits, to, do, to develop hobbies. And in our time especially, that will be a great protection from them from so many other things. And there's different types of hobbies that people can develop. And each child will be different, but we, this is a very important thing. And hopefully, as we mature as a community, in places like the United States will figure this out where there will be multiple options for each child whether it's something related to sports and there's a lot of uh, that can fall under sports whether it relates to um, different things that someone can do in and of their own selves there's some people are you know if you do, if you cultivate the desire for a child to bird watch for instance You'd be surprised how much they, even though some people might love like bird watching. Come on now, what young kid is wanting to do bird watching? But if you cultivate the love for that in their hearts, who knows? That might be something that they like to do. And there's like a thousand and one things like that that are in its origin permissible, where you can then encourage them to do something that, that is permissible. And there's a lot that could be said there. And I'm keeping it very general, but. Hopefully this will happen uh, at the community level where these individual hobbies are encouraged and parents will help their children to do that. Sports is, is one, of the, one of the great ways, but it's not the only way. There are many other ways as well. Now, So if you look at what he says on page 61, for those of you that, that has um, the books... Um, he, he mentions a little bit here specifically about video games. And he says, I'm often asked whether we should allow our children to watch television or play video games. He says, the answer is in these lines and those that follow. All things that lead the child to poor behavior or bad manners should be avoided. Many children after playing video games reenact the game. And anyone who has children has seen this. They reenact the game. 
if, especially if they're watching like YouTube videos of people strutting around and acting a certain way, you see it almost immediately in their behavior. They almost immediately, when you watch them without them realizing that you're watching them, or bringing those antics into their lives. So we have to be very, very careful. And I think at the same time, the solution is not complete prevention because then there's fear of backlash. It's, but at the same time, you're playing with fire. So it's finding that delicate balance where you have moderate exposure to devices, to television, to the internet, trying your best to have what you're exposing them to be something of benefit and of meaning. And then the times where you allow them to do that which might be considered to be permissible, depending upon what it is, you have to monitor them to make sure that, that some of the negative aspects of that do not um, that cling to them. Now, having said all of that, what happens when both parents are busy and the father's busy and the mother's busy and the children oftentimes alone and oof, that's a whole other right, topic in and of itself. And you realize at a certain point, you have to be there every day for your children. You have to have time that you spend with them. And it's hard to even make the environment so that you can have that time with them. But we have to. Whether it be a family dinner, whether it be some type of family gathering, we should find creative ways, whether we have tea or whether we have some type of sweets or doing something in addition after that they like to do, we have to spend time talking to our children. We have to spend time reading with our children. We have to spend time asking our children questions, asking them how their day went, really being aware of their day, who their teachers are, who their friends are, did anything happen, creating open lines of communication from the time that they're young letting them speak about their feelings. And sometimes that might not be done in a group. Sometimes that's done uh, individually. But it's essential that we, we invest the time and make the time. And if we can't do it every single day, we try to do at least a few days out of the week where we know during that time that's family time and that's time to sit together, learn together, read together, eat together, or something of that nature. And you'll be surprised how that will help moving forward in the, the, the raising of the children. And so he, he does bring up this point. Um, and one of the things that, that he, he, he does bring up here is that the other interesting point in this section is the reference to keeping the mind busy. And I'm not so sure that... Uh, that's what the author really intended was to keep the mind busy. But it, it does bring up something uh, really important. And idleness is actually very dangerous. It's one of the most dangerous things of all is to remain idle. Now, it doesn't mean also that you're constantly engaged. You need rest. You need downtime. You need playtime, especially for uh, younger children. However, idleness is not a good thing. And even for adults, it's one of the great ways where adults actually themselves develop very bad habits because they're idle. 
And um, if, if your soul is not refined, idleness will harm you for most people. And this is why the vast majority of people cannot be alone, even though they might want to be alone or be bothered by certain people in the community or certain community elements or whatever. The vast majority of people cannot be alone. And if they're alone, they're going to harm themselves more than putting up with a few difficult people. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a station to be alone. Now, some people, by way of temperament, are more introverted than extroverted, and that's a slightly different thing. But even those people, they might not like big groups, but they still need people. They still need to be around other people. And especially in our time, being around good people is therapeutic. Being around people that are like-minded is therapeutic. And this is something that all of us need. And it's one of the great ways to refresh your spiritual aspiration is to vent to a close brother or a close sister. And we can have a whole other separate entire lecture on the etiquettes of venting. Because venting does not give you the green light just to say everything bad about every single person. Right? There's a whole etiquette to venting. There's a whole adab to venting. And there's a fiqh of venting, if you will. And there's certain things you can't say. Even if you're venting. Even if you think, I have to vent. Right? There's certain things you got right? to refrain from. And you can achieve the same goal without mentioning those things like that. And really, we shouldn't be saying bad things about other people unless by you bringing up that specific thing that relates to that specific person, there's a need because the person that you're telling to can help you with it. That's different. If something specific needs to be mentioned to that person to help you with that thing, that's different. But other than that, you can speak in general. And it suffices. So anyhow, that's another topic. But this is what what he's getting at um, with the children. And there's a whole section here about um, developing the mind of a child, which is really, really important. And I think a lot of this is still in its earlier stages, and we don't necessarily have one book or one place where you can tell the community, hey, go here. This is the complete holistic methodology of how you develop the mind of a child. Um, if you look at the way that it's perceived in the West, there's obviously a lot that's out there in different methodologies in doing so. But the tendency usually is to only develop the child's mind academically and to prepare them for a particular type of success outwardly. And while that's at some, in, in some ways important, this is where our religion should define how we approach these types of things. The number one way that you want to develop the child is in relation to the state of their heart and coming to know Allah. And then after that, in relation to their character. And then even when it comes to the mind, if we talk about developing the mind of a child, there's a specific way of doing that. And we do that through teaching them principled thinking. And I prefer the idea of principled thinking to critical thinking, even though sometimes principled thinking is critical. 
Because that's really what it's about. It's about principled thinking. How do we think? And so even there, it's going to look quite different than what it is that they might be learning in schools when it comes to these things. And while they learn those other things, we still, on our own terms, have to develop the mind of, of the child to uh, get them to think principally. And so there's some, other, um, uh, there's some other benefits there that you can read on page 61 uh, and to all the way through 64. So okay, let's, um, part of this is, 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 is actually not to talk your ear off for an hour or more. Uh, really, this is uh, part of this session is supposed to be about uh, discussion. And um, usually that's what we like to do is to present some material and then to have a discussion, um, ideally related mostly to what was uh, discussed in class, but then we can talk about other things as well. So um, let's, inshallah, to stop there. And for those that, that want to get the book, I believe that we have copies uh, for sale at Al-Maqasid. If not, I think it's fairly easy to get through Mecca Books or even Amazon. And um, there's, there's a lot of benefit in here because what he does is he translates the text, he offers more traditional commentary, and then he has his reflections. And um, the author is a, is, is a friend, Sidi Abdaziz Fredericks, may Allah Ta'ala uh, bless him. He's done a lot of work. Um, he's done a lot of work uh, with um, special needs children. And um, he's a very concerned member of, of his community and has, has taught for many, many years. He's also a student of Habib Ahmed Mushur al-Haddad. So he's, he's a blessed person. And uh, there's, there's a lot of benefit that could uh, be brought from this. So I highly encourage you to get the book if you can. So we can open up for um, discussion. Any questions, concerns, comments? Better that we stop here because the next line is about disciplining children. And the word darb is used. So we won't translate that yet. We'll leave you in suspense till next month. Okay. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's a huge topic where it really needs to develop into its own module course, if you will. And um, I could very easily see it being, you know, at least like a ten-week, twelve-week course, if not two or three times that. And um, there are multiple people that I've that I've spoken to, friends that also are, are very much on the same page of its importance. But to this day. I don't know a single place that I can point someone or say, hey, take this course in principal thinking. There's a lot of ideas, but I haven't seen anyone do it. Now, it helps to um, <clears throat> learn basics of what's called in the West critical thinking or to go deeper the way that it was understood traditionally in terms of understanding logic. And there's no doubt logic, critical thinking, or logic is a part of it, but it's not, it's, it's, a part of it. There's many other dimensions of what, what I would mean by something like principled thinking. Um, and 
really what that means is how do we, when we look at the world in general or look at anything specifically in the world, have one, the correct conception, and then secondly, do the right thing. And you usually will see people make one or two mistakes on either side of that. They'll either not have the correct conception or they'll have the correct conception and do the wrong thing. Usually it's one of these two ways. And um, in other words, if you take it back to the archetype of the two basic archetypes of Dalal, of Miskalis, <laughs> those who have incurred Allah's wrath. Why? Because they knew. They had the conception, but they failed to do what was right. Or those who didn't have the correct conception and as a result erred and made mistakes. Those really are the two archetypes. And so it's about correct conception and also doing the right thing uh, in, in living up to what is right in that particular moment. So when we talk about principle thinking, how do we think about anything? Anything. The world, how it was created. So everything that relates to um, the, the creation of the world itself. And then if we that think about how do we think principled about various different types of science? How do we think principled about the world of psychology? How do we think principled about the world of economics? How do we think principled about the world of technology? How do we principally think about our own personal state? How do we think about uh, that how we are with our neighbors? How do we think about how we are in relation to our spouse? How do we think about how we are in relation to our career and life with other people and so forth and so on? I'm just throwing a whole bunch of things out there. All of these different things, there's ways of thinking principally in relation to them. And the summary is you will find it a combination of seeing things through a theological lens, a legal lens, and a spiritual lens, if you will, i.e. iman, islam, and ihsan. So everything that you have to look at, you have to look at from a theological lens, i.e. as it being from Allah. What's manifesting before you is one of the name or attributes of Allah. Secondly, everything that you look at, if you're going to be a principled person, there's a legal dimension. There's certain things you just can't do. There's certain things you have to do. There's shades where you don't know what's the right thing to do and there's not any good option, but still you're required to do something, so you have to do what's least harmful. That's, those are the hardest things. Or there's two opportunities of things that you can do, both are good. But if you're a principal think you'll do what's best of those options. So there's a lot, there's an incredible amount of nuance here. Um, and so, but then also spiritually, everything that you look at, if you approach life, and they, there's these things called the growth mindset and the fixed mindset, there's a whole theory that's out there about that. But um, the whole idea of the growth mindset is there's every opportunity in life, even if it seems to be quote-unquote failure, is an opportunity for you to grow. And so that's the spiritual lens. Everything that happens to you in life, no matter what comes your way, you're seeing it from a theological lens. There's a legal lens of, okay, to navigate what I should be doing, what I should be. And then how I approach it spiritually. And the only other really dimension I would add to that 
is, in order to think principally, you also have to be able to detect and question underlying assumptions of the existing current of thought in your time. So, for instance, um, in the United States of America, we do not live in a neutral society. Right? What I mean neutral here is more I'm thinking in the realm of knowledge, in the realm of thought, in the realm of philosophy, in the realm... And by trickle-down effect, everything is that we do. Right? You go into a hospital, you're not entering into a neutral space. You step into the university, you're not entering into a neutral space. You step into a courthouse, you step into you know, a public square, you step into whatever. It's not neutral. That space, that building, that entity didn't just come out of a vacuum. There is a long, extremely complicated history behind it. And so, how do you go to the university? Benefit from it, but to protect yourself from it as well. You would be surprised how, how many Muslims throughout the world, they're Muslims in terms of they say, La ilaha Muhammad Rasulullah, but in terms of the way that they think, You'd be surprised. A good like if you if there was a way to like detect it. What percentage of your thought is really principled thought of your beliefs of your perspective? You'd be shocked. You would be shocked about how low of a percentage it is for Muslims across the world. You'd be shocked. And sometimes the more sophisticated, nuanced Muslims, it's even worse. And you have to, we have to understand there's reasons for this, not to make blanket statements, but it gets back ultimately to education. And the, the vast majority of intelligent and quote-unquote educated people in Muslim countries, almost all of them were colonized and grew up essentially in Western schools. And there was a complete, almost complete bifurcation of knowledge for about 150 years in the Muslim world in most places in the Muslim world, definitely in the centers. And so if there was a bifurcation, i.e. there was very little overlap, and there's very little attempt to approach this new knowledge based upon our own principles, right? it's actually a miracle that things aren't worse. It's a miracle that things aren't worse. And... Um, now, solutions and all that are the difficult thing, but um, so before I, but so really what we mean by principle thinking is at all these different levels, personal decisions that you make relating to community, relating to your work life, relating to marriage life, relating all of these different things. How do we think principally? And then there's like small practical things like establishing budgets and not living beyond your standards. There's all these different... It relates to every aspect of our life. And, um, you know, we... we, we but if we, we... One of the keys is we have to be able to learn to question underlying assumptions. And at the level of the university, it's usually philosophical. At the level of the media, it's usually legal. 
and at the level of society it's usually social and there's a lot of details that, that follow that but yeah did you have a follow-up on that or yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there's, this, is, this is really the question, right? Um, one, really defining what it is, what are all of its dimensions, how it's done, what you draw on from the traditional sources in order to do this, which you can. You can draw on the Quran and the Sunnah, but also you can draw on principles of usul, principles of qawaid fiqhiyah. You can draw on the maqasid of the sharia and other. You can do a lot here. Uh, to, to really and logic of course logic is a part of it and then there is some benefit in, in the modern world of what's called critical thinking but it has to be packaged in the right way and then y- y- there, there's ways of uh, there's no doubt um, the more detailed discussions have to happen at a later age you can't teach some of this to like seven year olds Right, or five-year-olds. But once you kind of have a clear idea of what it is that you want to teach, then um, developing curriculum to teach, that's a whole separate skill. So like I could sit here and be like, okay, this is, this, is, this is the package. But I might be the worst person in the world tailoring that to the different age groups. Those are two very different skill sets. So you have to know... So but what I would say is, in general, the details would have to be learned at a later time. But part of the problem is our, the tendency of our culture is to be dumbed down. And so you get these classic examples of like Sheikh Hamza inheriting a book of rhetoric from his grandmother, his great-grandmother. And it's a book in high school and it's like, you know, a college graduate can barely read it because of... of the way that they used to train children and what they were exposed to. So there's no doubt the general tendency is one of being dumbed down. And what is meant by this is not being able to like take the SATs or you know, the GREs or the MCATs or something like that. It's more of the ability to think because um, you know, people might be getting test score, better test scores now than they did before. So it's more of the ability to think is what is meant by that. Um, but the... You know, there are things that you can teach in general. So, for instance, the, one of the classic examples I just like to make it, bring it, bring it home. There's a huge difference between science and scientism. Right? We're not against science as Muslims at all. We encourage science. But scientism is where you believe in order to prove something's existence... Or, other, or to prove something's benefit, you have to follow the scientific method. It has to be scientifically proven. Okay? But there's a load of underlying assumptions if someone's going to go that way. And who, who said that science is the only way to prove something? There's no proof that science is the only way to prove something. There's no proof. That's something someone adopts. And really what is, it's a reaction to someone who says that something exists for some other reason. No, you yourself have chosen not to believe in anything 
This is not scientifically proven. But just because something is not, uh, can't be scientifically proven doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Your science just can't prove that it exists. And that's why science can never disprove God. It's impossible for science to ever disprove the existence of Allah. Impossible. And any scientist that tells you that is a terrible philosopher and can't distinguish between the scientific method and philosophical that assertions that result from science. They can't. You cannot do that. Anyhow, that's a whole other topic. But my point is, let's say you want to prove to your children <coughs> that point. You can find creative ways to get them used to this idea of just because I can't see something doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Right? You can find ways of doing that and different techniques to teach children that same principle in a way that they can learn at an earlier age. And then you slowly over time start to introduce them more and more to it until they become actually quite advanced. And then, then they have the ability to pick up on it. When you read Time magazine, when you listen to whatever news, it doesn't have to be Fox News. We get caught in this dichotomy so much like Fox is like this, CNN and NBC are different, they're okay. No, they're not okay. Right? It's still totally framed. Totally framed. If you don't know what's going on, and if you don't read, and you're not good at questioning underlying assumptions, you're going to get drawn into a conversation, and you're going to get manipulated internally without even realizing it, if you can't learn to think through yourself. Um, and um, again, even, we've got to say that with a grain of salt, what does it mean to think for yourself? Right? That's a whole, it's a problematic phrase slightly anyway. Anyhow, these are all, there's a lot more details in these topics. But, um, yeah, so it, I, you can find ways to introduce children at different ages to these, these same principles. So, I mean, one, there's, there is scholarly difference when it comes to that. There's no doubt. And um, I think, one, we have to differentiate between um, a masjid and a musallah. There is a difference. Um, and if something is officially a mosque, the sanctity of it is greater. And there's certain ahkam, legal rulings that apply for both men and women. There are certain times that men, if they're in a particular condition, like women, can't enter into a mosque. There's legal rulings associated with it. There's legal rulings associated with buying and selling and things of that nature. So it's, it's whereas those don't apply to a musallah. Right? So it's for this reason, like here at Makhasta, we have a musallah. And one of the reasons is that for teaching purposes, that everyone can be in the building, um, that, that, uh, that uh, throughout... You know the the month, and that also in terms of children, we wanted to make it more children friendly, right? And so, 
um, it's not permissible to soil a masjid with filth, naj najasa. So that, that um, the obvious reason of the, for some ulama, um, that keeping children out of the masjid uh, was to prevent the masjid from being soiled with filth. Right? You have to keep in mind, like people didn't have, you know, like the fancy, really fancy type of diapers that we have now. Right. Oftentimes it was cloth or, you know, really nothing, which would be much easier in a pre-modern time to uh, soil a masjid and so forth. Um, and then other ahkam that, 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 that relate to that. So it, it's really kind of in that vein to preserve the sanctity uh, of the mosque. Um, now, having said that, um, I think we have to look. This is why this, 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 this question is hard to answer just directly. It seems like it's simple. But it's actually not simple because... Um, I'm also very hesitant in our time to not encourage anyone to not come to the masjid because it's a problem. You know, it's a problem in a country like Saudi Arabia that the average woman watches eight hours of television a day and they can't go to a mosque. Right? That to me is just does not make sense. You won't let them go to a masjid, but at the same time, the average woman is watching eight hours of television every single day that's a crisis so I think we really this is part of me of like tajdeed renewing our understanding of how it is that we approach the masjid in general in the Muslim world it's also very different than here in the Muslim world maybe not so much in the Gulf countries but in other countries uh, there is a lot more social space where you're doing things that you don't they don't all have to be around the masjid in the United States of America you know, there's not a lot of social space where places where you could comfortably go as a Muslim. You know, yes, you can go to get ice cream or go here, but there's not a lot of places that are comfortable, right, to go as religious people. Um, so even more so in our time, this is why I think it's so important that our masajid and our community centers be uh, open to these things. And so that I, I, would, I would like to see us really think about this a lot better where let's say for instance there's classes taking place in the masjid still there's ways for people that have preventatives that would prevent them from going into the prayer space still be able to take part in those classes and that we have for instance specific places where um, aren't necessarily 100% they're not considered to be masjid but they're attached they're more like a musalla where People could pray with their children and things like that. So I think we just need to be a little bit more creative. Um, and so there's ways around these, these types of things. So if I take it back to kind of what we do in Al-Maqasid, uh, we're still working. It's an ongoing project. But what we try to, we try to be as children-friendly as possible and welcoming. We want everybody there. And um, children included. The children should be in the gatherings. And... Um, we just we have limits on space, but inshallah, when we build the campus in the future, the idea would be uh, so as everyone's participating, mothers that need to nurse or a young infant child that's a bit noisy, there's a place directly attached it. Someone could take their child to let the child relax to nurse or whatever else privately, and still not be disconnected. Um, and then at the same time, though, I think during prayer we have to differentiate between prayer and outside of prayer. Uh, when it comes to prayer, that's where I think we need to be a bit, a bit strict.
when it comes to prayer, uh, we should not have young children running through the prayer rows and things like that. Um, that's where if a child cannot stand in the prayer row, there should be a separate place for either the parents that are watching the children to watch them while everyone else prays and then they can kind of switch roles and they can all pray together or all kind of agree that, hey, look, we're going to just all expect distractions and join the jama'ah, but kind of in a soundproof space where they're not uh, affecting other people. I think that's the only thing that's fair. So I think that's how I kind of look at these things. Uh, we have to really do a better job of that moving forward and to invest the time and the money and resources into uh, that. And it doesn't, it doesn't take much if you have people that are thinking correctly to, to make more options available. And why not have, when children get a little bit older, childcare at every masjid for the main events? Right? We should have childcare where we, you can go, you can, you can give your child to respectable, that well-run child care facilities on site at the masjid where they're not just running, letting them just run around and play, maybe age specific, but also while you're attending the khutbah, maybe there's something else of benefit that they can do. Maybe there's something else that they can teach them. And again, you know, these things are not, you know, they're not that hard if we put our mind to it and, and to really think ways of, but it's, um, you know, we, we're trying here, we're, you know, we fall short and make mistakes, but uh, we're, at least we're trying. I think as a community, we just have to do, do a lot better at, at these things. That was kind of a long-winded answer, but does that help a little bit? Is there anything else that anyone would like to add to that? Or? Yeah. Sure, no, please. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a very um, that's a very big topic, um, and I think that um, we're not alone in this. In other religious people, if you if you talk to really more conservative practicing Christians, it's the same thing. Uh, we're all kind of in this together. The modern world is just a difficult place to raise children in, um, and I think I, I do think though it's always better to err on the side of caution and to only expose to the extent, and each child is different, but to really only expose to the extent that it's needed because um, it would be very, like, I prefer standing before Allah, like, Ya Rab, I did my best. I tried to keep him from what I, or her, from what I thought would harm him or her. I moderately exposed him so that there wouldn't be backlash. I did my best, Ya Rab. And this opens up a whole other door where ultimately you are not required 
to raise your children, you're not required to make your children be good Muslims. You're required to do everything you can to help your children to become good Muslims. And there's a difference. You can't make anyone do anything. If it's from the divine decree that the child's going to go astray, there's nothing you can do to save the child. So that gives us the breathing room that you do your best to make the best decisions possible. And it does require courage where you know you're going against the grain. And, but that's not the only thing. There's going to be multiple things that your child experiences when they get into school and they start interacting with other people where they're going to be seen as kind of against the grain. Uh, and, and so I, I think it's better to confront those head on in the beginning and teach them courage and to build them to be strong and assertive than to shy away from it. That's just me in general, I would say. Um, and then the other thing is, is that there's other ways, there's other things you can do with your children so that they don't feel like they missed out. So they might have missed out on this particular video game that you want them to play. Uh, to play. Um, but maybe you can do something else for them. Maybe you can you know, find other ways to expose them to different things where they don't feel like they've missed out. Right? And I'll, I'll just kind of give like a funny example. You know, I personally, I hate theme parks. That's just me. I'm, I'm kind of boring when it comes to these things. But I said, okay, I felt like that was one of the things legitimately I didn't want my kids to have a backlash to. So I, I did the whole, you know, Disneyland, Dorney Park thing. And then I told my kids, I said, don't ask me to go again. I'm not going anymore. Right? I've done it with you. We had fun. I'm done. Right? You know, I would, I'm not saying I, wouldn't, I would prevent them from going again. I give them restrictions and... You know, make sure you pray your prayers and that type of thing, which they do, alhamdulillah. Uh, but someone else has got to take them now. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not doing that again, right? Um, but so I, that's not an example of what I just mentioned. That was like kind of a side thing. But I do think there's other things you can do where they, they, they generally don't feel like they've missed out. Right? And again, there's going to be a little bit of that still because, oh, so-and-so's got a phone. So-and-so learned to drive when they were 16. Just wait until Taha is, is a teenager. <laughs> ya Allah. Ya Latif. Even My with the money thing, right? Like, even, like, as you mentioned, theme parks, right? Like, okay, fine. I'm like, so supposed to can afford it. But then sometimes when you're spending all that money, you feel guilty that, you know, you're giving too much on, on that. It's not good to spoil children. That's a whole other topic. Right? <laughs> it's one of the worst things you can possibly do to a child. And there's a difference between being miserly and stingy and between being wise. There's a difference. But everything these days is expensive. Yeah. Like an iPhone is $1,000. Yeah, it's true. No, it's true. But that's the thing. I think there's so many things that if, if we can build that in our children, in the end of the day, they want mommy and daddy, not the iPhone. Even if they think they want the iPhone. In the end of the day... They don't want Dhoni Park. They want Baba and Mama in their lives. That's the reality. That's the reality. Even if they don't think that they do. That's, so 
cultivating that in themselves, in themselves, where right, it's that human interaction that really matters and really going, because sometimes it's on our end, right? We're just flat and tired and like it's a chore and okay, I got to do this and that type of thing. No, if we can train ourselves to have quality time where we're engaging them, they'll, they'll realize that. And even if they try to fight it in the teenage years, you know, in their early 20s, they'll, they'll, come, they'll appreciate that because they, they won't have psychological hang-ups at a later time of something that they actually really missed during a particular stage in, in, in their life. So, yeah, I, I think there's ways of, you know, yeah. And then some things, you know, there, there's just, you know, there's pushback. Like we were in, uh, we were in, you know, Utah over the summer with our kids and our parents. And it's just like at first it's like, hiking is so boring, right? right? They, they get bored. Like these things now, like if it's not doing something that's like exciting and whatever, and, you know, then, it, but there's ways I think of, you know, making something like hiking a little bit more fun, finding different ways, picnic or something, and, you know, bring some snacks for the top, whatever, ways where they, we went over time, but I guess we started it too, so, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless us, inshallah, to give us tawfiq, and bless us all to be able to raise beautiful children, ya arhamar rahmeen, and give us tawfiq in all of our different affairs, ya arhamar rahmeen, bless ourselves to be people of adab, inwardly and outwardly in all of our different affairs and give us the openings like the openings of the righteous to protect us and to preserve us and bless our hearts to be filled with his remembrance subhanahu wa ta'ala and we have all long, all have long lives in his obedience and bless us all with them come out husn al-khatim and al-mawt wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam